we have Miss Donna Britt here tonight, and you will hear her read excerpts from her new book, Brothers and Me, a memoir of loving and giving. And this book tells the story of her relationships with men resulting in what's been already titled um, a tender, funny, and heartbreaking exploration of universal issues of gender and race after the killing of her brother. This book has been receiving wonderful, wonderful reviews and has been chosen as one of the 10 titles to pick up right now by O Magazine. So if you haven't had a chance to get the book, we will, the bookseller will be here right after the talk. And I can just say that my copy, and there aren't, there aren't many perks in being a librarian, uh, but one of them tonight was that I got a chance to get my book signed right before we came in. And I was able to, one of the things that Miss Britt, who um, has won um, the Distinguished writing, writing Award for her commentary and column writing by the American Society of Newspaper Editors, her stories have been published in the Washington Post, Politics Daily, The Root, and Sojourners, and she has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. When I asked her about the book and I was getting it signed, she said, did you have a brother? And I said, I used to. And that started a conversation that I'm sure she is going to uh, bring full circle when she talks about her new book, Brothers and Me. So thank you for being here. Thanks for coming out. Um, this is the last of my scheduled events, um, and so I'm trying to think of how I'm going to handle this one. <sighs> brothers and Me, the title means brothers as in my brother. I, I um, know lots about brothers. I had three brothers, no sisters. I know a lot about, about men. My whole life, it's been men. Men. <laughs> three brothers, three sons, no daughters, two husbands, male dogs, everything. Men. <laughs> My whole life. And the book is about, when it says loving and giving, that's, a, that's an accurate description um, and how those two things feed into each other. It's mostly about women and giving and about the need in many women, I would say most, to give. And our often confused, puzzled, resentful um, reaction to this impulse in us. Because I think women today really pride, we pride ourselves on our independence and our autonomy, autonomy and our being equal to men and our being able to live independently of them. And yet, everyone, every woman in this room, if you're not that woman, you know a woman who gives in ways that don't really make sense to guys that really don't deserve it and, um, and in ways that even she um, or you or I don't really understand. And so resenting it, not understanding it, trying to hide it, doesn't make it go away. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh, yes. Yes, can I get a witness? Yes. <laughs> so that's what the book is about. And it's about where that comes from, why we're built that way, um, and the hope of starting a conversation about owning that. My supposition is that a wise creator would make one gender like that. I wouldn't want to live in a world without women's giving, without our softness, without our understanding, without our propping up, without our nurturing. The world is a hard enough place. It would be intolerable without that contribution that we make. The problem is when we get overtaken by our giving when we get overwhelmed by the impulse and when it's not appreciated and when we don't feel good about it, which happens 
more often than we like to admit, to women who are really smart. One of the interesting things for me about this book is when I, while I was writing it, I would, you know, you go different places um, with different groups of people and describe, they'll say, like there's a spa that I was able to go to because I know the um, owner, so I was able to go really cheap. But this was an expensive place, and most of the people there had serious money. And so we'd be on the hike, or we'd be at lunch, or whatever, and they would say, so, you know, you, you're like, people, what are you here for? And these women would be, have be CEOs or really high-powered lawyers. Some had their own um, nonprofits, really successful. And so I'd say, well, I'm working on a book. And they'd say, what about? And I'd say, it's about women and giving. And it didn't matter who the woman was, how much money she had, what color she was, what her social standing was. And this would happen in Trader Joe's, at the post office, everywhere. The gym. You tell women you're writing a book about women and giving, and you're going to hear some stories. Their stories, their sister's stories, their mama's stories about giving, and almost always about men, the, the men in their lives, um, husbands, a lot of fathers, sons, lovers, um, cousins, <laughs> and always a story about I, don't, I really don't understand why I give so much in this, in this instance. Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes it would be kids of either gender. So the genesis of my book is my brother, Daryl, who when I was, I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and he was my favorite. He was three years older than me, which meant he was the perfect age for me to have a crush on his friends. They were just the right age for me to have a crush on them, but they were too old to do anything about it, right, and get the beat down from him. And so it was really a really wonderful situation. And he was, he was really funny, and he was warm, and he listened to me as if I mattered, and he made me feel like I was important, and like someday a guy as wonderful as him might love me. And so he was essential to me. And we were really, really close. And then he went to, the, to Indiana University. And eventually, you know, I went to graduate school. He went to live his young adult life, and I went to live mine. And we sort of grew apart, as young adult siblings do, just so we could establish our own lives. And during this period, he was shot and killed by police in Gary, Indiana, in a very um, under circumstances that I don't want to go into, but it, they make no sense, and they don't comport with anything that I knew about him and that I knew about our lives and, and, for, and my expectations of what our lives would be. And I was in grad school at this point, and, you know, I, a few days before he was shot, he called me and said, you know, we're not as close as we used to be. Um, I, I really look forward to us being close again. And I said, wow, that means so much to me. You know, I'm so happy to hear that, and I, I'm glad for that to happen. And when he died, the bizarreness of it, the unexpectedness of it, the insanity of it, the fact that nothing about it seemed real, it seemed so huge that it couldn't possibly be merely the fault of the two cops that shot him. And so somebody else had to be to blame, and I picked me. And it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's not rational, but I, I always say that the heart is not a rational organ. And I felt, in, and even without knowing it, I felt that if I had been there, if I had still been the person calling him every day, the one checking in with him, the one saying, so what's up? you know, who you like, what's, you know, being that person, somehow I could have saved him. And it doesn't make sense, but that's how I internalized it. And I didn't realize this until actually fairly recently. Um, I'm a meditator, and so I like to pull away from the madness that is my life and everybody's life and get still and get quiet. And it was in, in, in that space, you, get a, you can get a clarity. And my son, Daryl, who was named after my brother, Daryl, and my son, Daryl, was in the wire. My son shot Bodie. <laughs> I'm so proud of that, because he's, he's, he's now in L.A., and he's acting, and I'm really proud of him. 
But he was, he's the one who would always ask you to do things at the very last minute and with the full expectation that you'll do it and you still try to do it. And so I'm sitting there, I'm meditating and I'm trying to connect with God and be in this place. And I'm thinking, how can I do for Daryl what I need to do for Daryl? And the thought occurred to me that if I don't do it, he'll die. And my head literally went back and I said, what? But in that clear space, I could, created by the meditation, I, I could actually feel and see that I had been thinking that way for decades, that I had to do for the men in my life or something terrible would happen. Again, it doesn't make sense, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't led by that thought and by that feeling for 30 years. And I thought back, I thought about a really bad marriage that I didn't leave. I thought about boyfriends that I supported. I thought about my, you know, as a, as a columnist at the Washington Post, I wrote the Valentine for black men. It's the most popular piece I ever wrote. You can, you can still find it online. I got, it was just an out and out love letter to brothers saying there's so many of you doing the right thing and looking good and smelling good and being good. And yet the culture and the media and this world we live in suggests that you are something else. And this is a love song for you from a sister speaking for a whole lot more. Obviously, this was the most popular piece I ever wrote. I got 300 phone calls, teddy bears, roses, three years running from the president of a black university, off the chart, um, love in return. But I always wondered at sort of my penchant for brothers, you know, my caring, sort of my reflexive love for them and belief in them. And part of it was rooted in this, in having lost my brother because I knew what a good brother he was and extended that to everyone else. And as a columnist, um, I sometimes wrote about my puzzlement at certain black women's automatic defense of black men who have done things that, <laughs> that aren't cool. So, I mean, you can think of, and, and some of them are brothers who could have care less about black women. O.J. Simpson. Okay, I don't know the last black woman he came into contact with, but it was a, it was a while <laughs> before he was accused of having killed his wife and her friend. And do you remember on the front lines waving the placards? It was sisters. And Marion Barry, bitch set me up, sisters. And that's a little more understandable because he gave jobs to their sons and to them. Um, but Clarence Thomas, sisters, <laughs> with the placards and the belief in that this is somebody who is going to do, you know, and brothers, you know, were feeling that too, but the black women that were there, and he was, his sponsor in Congress was a white man, his wife was a white woman, um, Michael Jackson whose use for black women is probably was limited with boys in his bed. This is not something that our community encourages. I mean, this reflexive sense of protection and support of men who at least appear to have done wrong. And it made me realize that my feeling extended to them because I was, I was protected. You know, I, I grew up middle class. I have college educated parents. What happened to Daryl wasn't supposed to happen to us. But think about the sisters to whom that's not such a surprising event because it's happening all around them. And Daryl's death made me understand their reflexive support. They're, they're giving the benefit of the doubt to men who don't appear to me to deserve it because they know so many other men are like Daryl. They did not get the benefit of the doubt. People assumed they knew who they were. You know, the people who shot my brother had no idea how important he was and how amazing he was and how essential he was to my being whole. And so, his, so that revelation about how his death had affected me extended to a whole lot of other sisters. And so that was the genesis of the book. So it's about my life as a sister of a slain brother, but it's also 
about a lot of other black women whose journeys are, maybe don't seem that similar, but who've arrived in this place where brothers are inestimably, you know, we can't even describe how precious they are to us. And yet, we can feel anger and resentment and pain at not being maybe appreciated as much as we are. We're the least likely of all women to marry outside our race, to have those kind of connections outside our race. And the popular, I talked about the popular image of black men. What's the popular image of black women? Is it supportive and loving and loyal and faithful and the things, you know, and you know, I, used to, I wrote a lot about music that disrespected sisters. And I would, I would bet my, you know, the pennies that are my fortune, I would bet every one of those brothers was supported at some point totally and completely and lovingly by some black woman. And so the, the contradictions are what make life interesting and are what this book is about. So it's about women and giving. It's about my brother's death and the effect of that. It's about a culture that doesn't understand or know how to respond to either of those things. So you all with me? Okay, so I'm going to read you a little bit. So this, this is right after I've discovered that Daryl has died. I'm, I'm, I've gone home from graduate school at the University of Michigan, and I'm back home in Gary. When someone you love shifts from the firmness of flesh to the squishiness of memory, even powerful remembrances may be lost to you. Yet some stuff you never lose like the memory of staring at a newspaper headline viewed a dozen times before and feeling like you're seeing it for the first time. Gary Mann shot by police. I was 23. Sitting at the table in my mother's kitchen, I'd been called home to Gary, Indiana from grad school by an event that could not have happened. The headline in the Post-Tribune was supposed to make it real, so I read it over and over, repeating the words in my mind. Gary Mann shot by police. I'd read them too many times in my hometown newspaper not to know what they signified. A no-thought headline announcing the shooting of an anonymous thug. Such a headline couldn't possibly refer to my brother Daryl. Important people's passing warranted outrage, regret, astonishment, and nobody in the world was more important than the brother who loved me. Gary Mann shot by police? It hit me. To most of the world, my life's most shattering event was no big deal, because Daryl had been mistaken for ordinary. Not the average Joe ordinary that nearly every white guy is assumed to be. Even in Gary, the former murder capital of the United States, the shooting of the most undistinguished white man usually warranted more than a newspaper shrug. But Darrell was black ordinary, which meant his life didn't matter much. Not to the police who shot him, not to the reporter who wrote the terse, six-paragraph report of yet another brother getting himself killed, and certainly not to the copy editor who took all of three seconds to compose Gary Mann shot by police. Ordinary. Well, in some ways he was. Daryl wasn't short and he wasn't tall. He was neither linebacker thick nor tap dancer wiry. His eyes were warm and dark and kind, but no more so than millions of other young men's eyes. At 5'10", he was precisely the average height for an American male. He was quietly good looking, as tender, volatile, and doomed young men often are. He was just Daryl, and all that he was not, striking, brilliant, wildly successful, hardly mattered to those who couldn't imagine life without him. A regular man, he was like regular men everywhere, loved by his little sister with unremarkable completeness. Is it surprising that he died what has increasingly become a regular black guy's death? Growing up, I hadn't the slightest sense that black men, my brothers, my schoolmates, my father, 
were more vulnerable than other men or boys. Daddy had been too formidable to be afraid for, and the most dangerous thing I envisioned my brothers facing was a schoolyard beatdown. But staring at the headline in Mom's kitchen, I examined the facts. My mom's torrential tears, the ashen corpse at a local funeral parlor, a familiar phone number that now belonged to no one. Facts of what had surely to be fiction. Daryl was dead? Like the headline, two Gary cops had mistaken him for something he'd never been. They'd received a call that a black man was trying to steal a truck at his lakeside neighborhood. Investigating, they'd found my brother crouched in a ditch. They claimed he'd attacked them, that they had to shoot him. Daryl, whom I'd never known to steal anything, who was among the kindest people I knew. If such an absurd mistake could be made about him, it could be made about any black man. The policeman's claims and my brother's dead body proved that the value and the safety of the people I loved most were in question. I wasn't sure I could live with that. Perhaps it was then, as I sat dumbfounded at my mom's dinette table, staring blankly at her kitchen's cheery yellow walls, that I began pushing my brother into my mind's dimmest corner. I did it so well that today it's easier to remember what my favorite brother wasn't than what he was. He wasn't like my oldest brother, Steve, older than me by five years and so taken with his own giftedness that he couldn't see my drawing, hear my singing, ponder my opinions as if they mattered. He wasn't four years younger like my brother, Bruce, whose age deficit meant I could take his admiration for granted. Sandwiched with me between them, Daryl didn't stroke or scream at people like Steve did to get his way or seem malleable by do, while doing exactly what he pleased, like Bruce. He was something else entirely. Remembering what he was means stepping into a bleak, little-used room inside me. Flipping the light switch, I squint and discover that my eyes don't quite focus. Feeling my way around, I bump into unresolved emotions. I slip on scattered memories. I prick myself on sharp-edged regrets. I don't go in there often. And as the years have passed, the light inside has grown dimmer and dimmer. So, um, I'm not, usually there's a program set up, so I'm not sure if I should take questions or if I should talk more. Does, do, does anybody have a question or? A comment? I mean, I can read something else. Hi. I am a big fan. I work here in Baltimore, but I commuted to DC for 15 years. And her column was a column that I cut and saved, and I have some in a folder now. Thank you. She topics from politics to women and men, and the Valentine and all of it. Great. I'm going to read this book. I can't because I know you as a columnist, and I am incredible with the book, but came because um, I wanted to hear you, see you, and just say thank you for all the many columns. I mean, I think you have to kind of teary eye about the brother because I recently lost my mom, and I was talking this morning to a colleague who lost his mom, but just getting on the train, on the market the train, and looking for Donna Britt's column. And so, if you do another book, you can do a book of all your comments. I mean, you deserve it with the Valentine's one, but I mean, just, just across the board, great, great work. And Thank, so you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much. Good evening. Hi there. I'm sitting here with mixed emotions as I listen to you share about your brother because mm -hmm. I had two brothers and I was the middle girl between the two mm -hmm. and I've lost both my brothers. One um, was had some troubles mm -hmm. and he left Baltimore and I was blessed to see him uh, on a bus stop and he, the night he told me he was leaving to go to California. But little did I know that was going to be the last time that I would see my older brother alive. Mm -hmm. And then I just lost my younger brother 
in June of 2008 to violence in Baltimore City. So as I'm listening to you and just kind of trying to hold back the tears of, you know, knowing that loss of, of your brother and, um, you know, I have memories of both of them. My older brother, I guess, a little bit more because he and I grew up and spent more time together. So I just want to thank you. And that's what brought me here. I wanted to hear your story as a sister, knowing what it's like to, to lose a brother. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Anyone else? I don't know the suggestion you said we might want you to talk about something. I, I'm sort of curious, having read a lot of the accounts about go to white women after having been supported by a black woman and and also um, the the sort of the therapeutic piece of it because what what I tend to find is that people um, a lot of times sometimes it's a, a social a, a social kind of a thing or the way you're raised kind of thing because women are always told well you got to support black men because they've been through so much and or you got to support them because they're having a hard time and or you got to support your family or your children or your mother or whatever, whoever's going through something because, um, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. So I'm just sort of curious as to some of the behind the scenes stories. But but that seems to be something people tend to make you feel guilty if you don't go above and beyond either taking care of a sick parent, taking care of your kids putting your man or whatever before you and that you're supposed to be able to do all of this and keep doing what you're doing in terms of being successful but also you know do all of that because you know the men have had it hard I think it's a double-edged sword I think that um, I think the fact that so many women have naturally have this impulse um, no one of the interesting things about it is, I've had men in my life tell me, you don't have to give so much. And I still do. Um, so I think it's a combination of the impulse and the expectation. And I think sometimes the resentment comes from the expectation when the impulse has you giving so much that when you finally aren't up to it, the expectation is there because everything you've done up to that point suggests that you will be there. You will be the person who will support, um, tell the right things to, guide, um, cook a meal for, pet on the back, you know, all the things that we do. And I, you know, part of what I think because it's almost impossible for me not to give. One of the things I'm really focused on is appreciation, is gratitude. Because, you know, and it's so important to me that my sons, I mean, I, I, wherever I would go when my sons were small, you know, two of them are grown, one's 16, I would always be complimented on their manners. Because it was so important to me that they understood that, you know, that courtesy is not, it's not um, something you don't think about. It's something that's automatic because everything that's given you, you should be grateful for. I mean, it's a spiritual gift. The more grateful you are, the more happy you are, and the more happy you make the people around you. So part of what I'd like to do is to bump up not just women's analyzing of their giving, but also everyone's gratitude for it. Because... What makes it feel bad, a lot of times, isn't the giving, it's the lack of appreciation and the lack of acknowledgement. Hi. Um, I had already pointed at her, yeah. She, um, I'm, I'm in agreement with the double standards aspects of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking that women are... Um, by nature, we are nurturers, mm -hmm. um, and the majority of us were brought up that way to always want to take care of something or someone. 
Um, and those of us who have grew up in environments where um, you watched your, your, your dad take care of home and your, I mean, take care of financially, take care of the home and your mom take care of him, that's what you picked up on doing. But I think nowadays we, we have that, we want to do that, but we've lowered our standards. We're allowing um, um, men to not take care of home financially, but we still want to take care of them. So for me, it's, it's, it is that double-edged sword, but we have to, in order to be appreciated, you, they have to know what they're appreciating, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's not happening. If I lower my standard, I'm just giving myself away. A lot of us give ourselves away. You know, it's easy to give away that which you don't value. And so many, you know, I, I would say self-love is the toughest nut to crack for every human being. I don't care what color you are. I think, I think most of the madness that you see in the world perpetrated by anybody stems from the difficulty. I'd say every human being has of loving and accepting him or herself. The way it plays out is interesting. In some people it plays out in that they only take because they feel so empty, taking is the only thing that they know. For many women, I think it plays out in giving because maybe we don't know that we, you know, that what we, we, we do understand that what we give is often needed, but sometimes we just give in the hopes of getting back or in the hopes of getting some acknowledgement or the hopes of somebody giving us some attention, some love, some affection, something. You know, it's not about, it's not a, it's not so much a gift of love, but just a, a sort of a throwing at people. And for me, writing the book was really interesting because I, I was forced, because I got a big advance and so I had to write the book. <laughs> so I was forced to go to uncomfortable places inside myself to look at my giving and to try to figure it out and to understand that, that so much of it did come from, this, from my love of my brother. And I actually felt good about that because this impulse that had, that had in many ways, um, I feel, you know, was sometimes taken advantage of and that made me stay probably in a bad marriage longer than I should have, that made me not even accept some um, career opportunities because I was certain that the men in my life needed me more, um, that this impulse that <coughs> so confused and frustrated me came from a loving place and came and that it came from my love of my brother that was a wonderful thing to understand and i want women to be able to find their own everybody's journey is different and what was wonderful about writing it was hearing so many white women whose backgrounds were totally different from mine talk about what their journey to that giving was and to hope hopefully once you understand where it comes from better you you can have a better handle on it and at least forgive yourself for it at least understand that this isn't just madness and a, a complete lack of self-worth, that this can come from something beautiful and that it is a beautiful, it is a, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a spiritual gift. And I want us to be able to own it and to love it and to embrace it and then maybe control it more. Um, Chris, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, hi. Yeah, so, hello, Ms. Britt, how you doing? Hi there. Um, I actually had a question, a couple questions, or maybe they have be summed up in one question. Um, the question was, as you said, it, 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 it seems to be a double-edged sword, as the other lady had just as, as also um, acknowledged that. And I guess my question is, I guess history shows just how much that women give as well. And I guess we see, or I say some men see, as the women that take as takers. Do you believe that one um, sex, so to say, are givers and one sex are, are, are receivers? Or do you think that those that take more don't have the knowledge of knowing how to give or vice versa, mm -hmm. meaning that those who give, those who receive, or those who give so much don't receive? And I guess I, I kind of, was on the same page with you when you spoke of giving. 
I understand the giving from a male perspective because I feel exactly what you said about not appreciating those who don't acknowledge mm -hmm. that you're giving them. I found my own self in, I'm very young, I'm 32, but I found my own self in the same aspect with women, I mean, family, people whom I've talked to, dated, so on, so on. I thought I was giving. I thought that from my aspect was that my father and my grandfather, who mm -hmm. were the two closest men in my life, whom I saw, where there wasn't a question of, it was always, would you like something? What do you want? And it was just getting it. There wasn't an idea on price. There wasn't an idea on this, that, and the fourth. There wasn't an idea on an item because money, I realized that people, for me, from what I've learned in my own life, is that let's say you have a budget and your budget is $1,200 extra dollars per month. I understand that, and this is what mothers, single parents do each and every day. If their budget is $1,200 per month, we all know that the mothers here and the fathers that are those type of fathers, if they only have $1,200 and the children want something, this is like holidays or one of those type of things, where there are, let's say there are no bonuses, they still stretch that $1,600 worth of amount of money to utilize for that child. I feel that those who are givers do the same thing each and every day. They, they go above and beyond their capabilities in giving. And all they ask in return, and they don't even ask, they just will hope for, as you spoke of earlier, and as I also feel the same way, is acknowledgement. Do you think that's just on a, a one-sided uh, one situation? Do you think it's just there's Not a lack there? No, and you know, it's, I always have to get to this point in when I talk about this, is I have to say there are extremely generous men. And I'm sorry that I didn't mention that earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, and I've been blessed to know um, more than a few. And there are very take women who are takers, you know, big time, major. They're all about that. Um, and, and some of them make no bones about that. That's it's like, you know, I'm going to get mine. And so and I'm, I'm speaking very much in generalities. Um, and so. But acknowledging that, for me, doesn't change what I've seen, that women tend to. And it actually makes sense. Whoever's going to take care of a baby, it just makes sense to me. It would be built in that the primary caretaker of a totally helpless infant has to be somebody who is geared to give. It makes sense to me. Um, you know, not being appreciated. I don't care who you are. And there are a lot of underappreciated under, under and unappreciated men. And there are women whose lack of self-esteem and whose bad models um, and maybe whose character look for men to take advantage of and are happy to find such a man. Um, and there are women whose, and I do think this is a lack of self-esteem, for whom kindness and generosity in a man is a sign of weakness. And they, they, you know, after they get what they want, or even maybe before, they flee, because that's a frightening thing, someone who sees them with enough warmth and regard to want to give to them. You know, that, that's a scary thing. You know, and, you know, to me, um, such a job has been done on black folks' minds. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up not even being able to imagine that I could wear my hair like this. The idea of not changing monumentally my hair in some kind of way was completely foreign to me because there was something basically wrong with it. And I remember my mom, I had to fight her to get an afro. Fight her. Because I was, I was choosing ugliness. You know, I was choosing unworthiness. I was choosing something that she and her generation had run from. You know, I remember being, you know, the realizing that I was black and thinking, well, dang, I'm not light enough to, to pass, you know, and this hair, and even if I could get the hair thing together, 
And the skin thing, this nose would definitely give me away. And so it was like, damn, you know, you're kind of stuck. And I just remember that. And, you know, there are still people who talk about good hair and who think light skin is pretty and dark skin is not. That they, we still have that. We have absorbed so much poison that it spills, I think, into all kinds of areas of our lives. And being human is challenging enough. I think being black and human has its special challenges and that it definitely um, feeds into our relationships, male and female, male and male, female and female, but especially male and female, because that's the one that's so important to the health and the vibrancy and the well-being of our people. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Thank you. My husband's over here, and he actually reminds me of my brother that died in so many ways. Um, Kevin is the national editor of the Washington Post, but he's such a brother. You, he can go anywhere. And I always valued that in men. You know, a man who can go, he, you know, he covered Congress and jogged with presidents, but he could be on any corner that the wire was shot and you handle himself. Um, so, and my brother was like that. He had a common sort of touch where he was comfortable with all kinds of people. Um, you know, I wanted Daryl's warmth. I wanted Daryl's love for me and his acceptance of me. Um, his humor. So these are just things I would love in any man. And that, I, you know, the, the funny thing is, if you read the book, you'll discover I actually married someone who was much more like my father, whom I didn't really like that much. I loved him, but he was a sort of a classic 50s, 60s dad. Um, it wasn't about I love you or warmth and hugs. And, you know, the relationship that my sons have with their father is so different from what we, what I saw, I don't know what you saw, um, there wasn't the same kind of warmth, the same kind of stated um, connection. But I actually went more for that, certainly in my first marriage, um, someone who was silent, who had trouble expressing his feelings. Um, so yes, so yes, <laughs> probably. Thanks for asking an interesting question. Hi. I can go. Uh, <laughs> Um, I guess I, I guess I have a few questions, and that that is a true statement what you said about about Kevin being uh, being an every every everyday brother. Because um, I mean that's the smoothest editor I've ever met in my. And I've been around <laughs> a few editors. I mean, this, I said this is impossible, <laughs> but um, but you know I think your book raises really a lot of questions. Um, and you know my wife got a copy of it, um, and she started reading, and I I got a little nervous. Because, <laughs> because you know, you know, she wouldn't put it down either. I mean, she was just at it, just you know. And I was thinking to myself, I said, you know, you know that 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 taking part mm -hmm. um, without men actually realizing that that there is an expectation. Um, when I have to work, um, you know, late, mm -hmm. there's an expectation that she will have my daughter regardless mm -hmm. of what's going on, and. Um, and I, I realized that because, uh, I mean, it's not fair. And if, you know, if, I, if, if something impedes on what I have to do at work, oh my goodness, that's just, you know, crazy. Um, so, so I think we do take um, without recognizing it. And mm -hmm. to show appreciation for that taking, um, I, think, I think is really important. Um, and so, that, I mean, that's a question. Women's giving is a question and appreciation is another question and conversation that 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 we need to have um, universally but mm -hmm. I think the African-American community needs mm -hmm. to have I think one of the, the the worst things that could have happened to African-Americans um, you know even since slavery after reconstruction sort of the false promise of America is the attack on on black men and black women um, I think both and on the the attack on the family mm -hmm. um, and so my question I guess um, is you talked about the misrepresentations of black men in, in the media uh, and universally. Um, but I think the misrepresentations of women also 
um, has hindered our ability to show that appreciation and that giving. Um, if you look at the media and the images that are portrayed in the media now about African-American women, I was so pleased to see the Washington Post um, cover yesterday about the stereotypes of, of black women in America and sort of giving an, an account of that. I mean, that was, that was amazing. Um, it's, almost, it's, it's always about the body and not the mind. And so, well, that's I guess, not limited to the black community. That's, yeah, oh yeah, that's, I mean that's universally. I mean, yeah, just, okay. But do you think that that has a lot to do with um, that that misappreciation of, of of women and giving? And how do you think that those images affect women mm. and the representation of women today? Um, let me say first that some of this stuff is you know everything that we're talking about is universal. It really isn't just about us. You know, things like um, being taken for what you are on the outside. That's, that's a human problem. That's not just a black person problem. It just has particular resonance with us because the problems associated with that can be so deep and so life affecting in so many ways. Um, when I was writing my column, I wrote so much about black girls and what they saw. And I just remembered, I remembered, um, I remember slipping a note when I was living in LA, uh, I was interviewing, I was at Disney and slipping a note to Michael Eisner, who was then the chief of Disney about what about a black heroine? What about a black girl? We have, you know, the Cinderella's and the, you know, what about that? And, and years later we did get, you know, the princess and the frog. But you know what I noticed about that? She is the only Disney princess that doesn't have a love song. If you watch that movie, you know, you don't have a whole new world. You don't have, you know, the songs that and, and I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a romantic song girl. You know, um, and she didn't get that. And it's like, hmm, and she didn't have a black man either. She got a really cute sort of Arab looking guy. <laughs> so I mean, it's always so interesting with us. Um, and, you know, rap music, I just thought I would lose my mind because there were so many ugly representations of black women and girls by men who I knew were, in, were being supported by, by, loved by, maybe raised by some black woman. And so, when you talk about bitches and hoes, where does that put the grandmother who raised you? And where does that put, you know, even the troubled mother who, you know, it's, it's you know, we are a, we are, we are off in many ways a troubled, embattled people. And so that lack of acknowledgement, like you said, of appreciation that you, that we could all be skeezers and, I mean, you know, the representations I'm talking about, and they just seem so overwhelming and so, Narrow. Yes, there are women like that. Yeah, and, and some, you know, some, some men seem to run into nothing else, but that is not the entirety of who we are. And it was so unfair for us to be labeled that way. And But brothers hated being labeled as um, takers and as criminals and as, I'm sorry, womanizers, all the things that they, and but then there was the recognition that black men were endangered. But how could black men be endangered and we not be? How is that possible? You know, and so that I could feel, and that most of the women I knew could feel so connected to black men and so concerned about their well-being. And, there, and, and that, for me, that was very obvious and that we could be so easily dismissed and demeaned in the public sphere was, was physically painful. So, but you know, people, there's very little human behavior that if you dig deep enough, you're not gonna understand it. And so the idea of conversations like this, the idea of this book, the idea is that if we go deep enough, we can understand enough to make it better you know, to appreciate each other, to see each other. The most important thing is to be seen and to be known. And we know that we have historically been not seen and not known. So maybe we can start at least seeing and knowing each other with some honesty and some authenticity and some affection and some forgiveness.
your giving. Oh, did you consider your giving a form of penance? And if you did, have you finished paying? I'm sure it was penance for not being there, for not having somehow protected him, for not keeping him with me. I don't see it that way anymore. Now that I know that that's where it comes from, um, I feel more like I give because I have to and because I want to and because there's a need. It's rare that my giving doesn't address a real need. I'm not usually just giving for the hell of it. I'm giving because I, I do see a need and it gives me pleasure to address that need. You know, I haven't talked about that. We like to give because it feels good. It really does. It feels good to, you know, I, I did a radio show with a woman and I'm talking about it. She says, well, honey, I have to admit to you, my, my two college age kids are home. One's a girl, one's a boy. The girl, she's, you know, she's out partying. She's having a good time. The son, I, I wake him up gently. I said, do you want some pancakes, honey? And I mean, she's, her, she's different with her son. And but what I got her to, to think about was, and she was sort of beating herself up about that. And she said, well, I said, does your daughter want that kind of attention? Oh, no. Does your son? Oh, yeah. He's home from college. He wants mommy's love. He wants to know that he's important. He wants to know that somebody wants to do for him. I don't have a problem with that. If she feels good about it and he feels good about it. And what's wrong with that? It's love, right? And maybe loving her daughter looks and feels differently. So. I don't think it's a penance as much anymore as sort of an acknowledgement of who I am and an acceptance of who I am and watching who I am to make sure it doesn't spill into that other gray area. Hi. I was wondering, because you, you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier about um, not, we not feeling good about ourselves, and I'm wondering if you think or would agree that because of the segregation and the Jim Crow and the different rules, if that could be the cause of why we are the way we are and probably have more to deal with and to get over than other races. That's a question. Is there anyone in here who doubts that for a second? I, I mean, um, for monetary reasons only, for reasons of greed and money and we were taught and everyone was taught that we were less and be, you, you teach that people are less so that you can treat them like less as less and the, you know if, if it were only that you could get past that it, the problem is we absorbed it as as I think as powerfully as as the people who were teaching it to us we accepted it and we um, started to see ourselves as less. And rising above that, pushing that out of us is, it's still a challenge. I mean, this stuff goes deep. My son, when he was a little boy, um, and we, I was raising him with as much love and as much um, pride as I could, and he wanted blue eyes. And I'm like, why do you want blue eyes? He says, Superman has blue eyes. <laughs> and how do I fight that? Now, you know, but, but it's, it's never as simple as it seems. I have a really good a white friend who, just to show you things are not always so simple. She told me um, that she had neighbors and she was in a conversation with another person about these neighbors and she and they were saying about you know something about black kids or whatever like that and then they the neighbor said to her well why don't you check with Jean you know about her kids and she's like but Jean's kids aren't black and they were black they were her neighbors she it had honestly and she's not crazy she's a really smart loving person but the context in which she saw them was as her neighbors, as kids who were individuals, who were funny, who were um, playful, who were all these different things. Their blackness on some level, maybe she knew it, but it just did not matter. So that when somebody was talking about a black problem, she couldn't attach it to them because she didn't see them that way. She saw them as human beings. So a world in which that's possible tells me anything is possible, that it is possible for me to excise 
some of this craziness that I have absorbed. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, I'll never forget that. And, oh, a better story. Um, our next door neighbor, we moved into this house in Tacoma Park, and the neighbors were white, and the, um, the guy who, the, who was running the place to me said, you know, you should get to know Mary Jo and Tim. They have kids the same age as yours. So I don't know any black Mary Joes. So I'm already like, mm-hmm. And sure enough, Mary Jo and Tim are white, and, of course, the kids could care less about this. You know, Daryl runs over, Jacob becomes his best friend instantly. And Jacob is over our house all the time eating meals, you know, getting his knee taped up, you know, being pulled out of trees. And Mary Jo becomes a really good friend of mine. She was in my wedding. Uh, we do yoga together. She comes to me and she has this pained look on her face. And I'm wondering, what is wrong? And she says, I don't know how to tell you this, but Jacob's teacher came up to me today and said, why is it that Jacob doesn't like black people? And so I'm pulling away because Jacob has been telling people that he doesn't like black people. And so then, so Mary Jo sits him down and says, why don't you like black people? And he says, I don't know. And she says, but you like Daryl. And he says, Daryl isn't black. And he says, you like Donna? Donna's not black. So this is sort of the flip side of my other friend's story. Black was so awful that he knew not to like it. And his parents are social workers, Mennonites, you know, I mean, and serious, serious teachers of tolerance and love. This is how deep racism can be in, in our society, that this boy couldn't even, he couldn't, it made no sense. And so what did make sense was to make the people that he loved to separate them out of that black mass of badness. So this is the kind of stuff, when people tell me, well, I know so-and-so isn't racist, I'm like, who isn't? I mean, who hasn't absorbed some, uh, some part of this ugliness that is, has so infected this country? You've had your hand up for so long, I apologize. This is the last question. Okay. You have a voice that carries. You don't need this. First of all, I want to thank you for writing your book that broaches this subject among us as African folk in this country. And I just want to thank you for that specifically. Uh, it's always been a passion of mine to wanting to engage this conversation among us as a people, the uh, strained relationship, whether mm -hmm. it's imposed externally or internally mm -hmm. on African men and women in terms of our relating to one another. So I thank you for beginning the conversation. I, I just want to share that I think it's a part of intergenerational pain and trauma passed down from generation to generation. I'll just share some personal antidotes that affected me. Uh, my mother, I knew she loved me, and I knew she loved my brother. Uh, he was four years older than me. but because of, I didn't know at the time, the pain and trauma she had gone through, she wasn't able to express it in a healthy manner. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of sexual abuse mm -hmm. perpetrated by my older brother upon myself and my younger sister that I found out later that was linked to some other um, sexual abuse that had been perpetrated on another family member. So that was going on. My brother, my brother and we took divergent paths. I embraced African culture and the arts. My brother embraced the unhealthy street life and um, the entrepreneurship of independent drug distribution. I like to put it like that. Um, and he went that direction, ended up being incarcerated repeatedly. And it was a point of the pain and strain between African men and women that I realized that my mother couldn't deal with my strivings was academic, embracing the arts, embracing culture, that she began to view me as a problem because it seemed to me it was easier her to deal with my brother. Mm -hmm. I was trying to encourage my brother to seek, after several times of being incarcerated, of seeking therapy and some job training, he was getting older. My mother had an issue with that mm -hmm. and even told me while well, I was about to graduate high school had received some scholarships and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. 
She said, I'm sick of you in this house staring up mess. I need you to leave. Not my older brother who had been incarcerated repeatedly. I even found out later that my mother was actually preventing my brother who was basically functionally illiterate. She was actually counting and taking care of his drug money so that he could not, he would not fall up short um, with that. And there was other real, little silly things, strange things that made the, I knew something was wrong. One time I was dating a young lady and my date said, my girlfriend said, go on my person, get that out. My mother, here I am, college, doing all this, everything. My mother said to the girlfriend, no, no, this stuff, I'm going to take a couple months. Said, oh, you don't let no man go in your purse. I'm her son. She raised <laughs> me. She going to tell some other woman that she don't know she didn't give birth to you. Don't ever let a man go into your purse that you can't trust them. Some really deep-rooted things. My mother and I, before she passed, I, we were able to work some things off. I shared some things with her because that burden was really traumatic. It affected me in a way where I would date only sisters who emotionally, mentally abused me. And there would be a sister calling me, want to be in my company, and I would only go with the one that I would have to pursue, jump through hoops for. And not until therapy, I realized that I was still seeking the approval of my mother. And I realized that I had a choice. And why don't I talk to the sister who wants to be in my company for the pleasure of being with me that she wants uh, to be? What a concept. Yeah. <laughs> but also, this is really serious. I'm also a theater teacher and filmmaker using that for social justice. I work with young mm -hmm. people. And during the Chris Brown Rihanna situation, I was working on a film with middle school girls. Mm -hmm. And I had to, I knew I had to deal with the whole thing of sexism and misogyny mm -hmm. among black folks because middle school girls, 13, 12 and, and 14 was blaming Rihanna, said, mm -hmm. that devil, she snitched on Chris Brown, he got money. And he one girl said, yeah, because because the boy <coughs> only going to beat you up or smack you around if he really loved you. Mm -hmm. So we had to include that in the film to deal with that. I was an adult man dealing with these beautiful future queens and brilliant minds still having that in, and that was just a few years ago. So I just wanted to share that to give your impression of it, about how we need to look at the whole spectrum of our family. And then I found out that my mother's pain was coming from my grandfather not really acknowledging her, not being married to my, to my grandmother, my mother's mother, married to other woman, and that he didn't even acknowledge her, she was acknowledged as his child in his obituary, that she was omitted, but everybody knew she was there. So that kind of, I call it African folk, black folk pain, that we kind of hush hush. Well, we know that, you know, that's his baby, but we don't have to say that. So. You know, I have to say that, and I so appreciate your sharing and, um, so understand, as I told you from my story, you chasing after the love that you didn't have when you were small or that you perceived yourself as not having. But I have enough friends of other race to tell you it ain't just us. Nope. You know, the complications, the strangeness, the, the bizarreness, the, the hidden, hidden stuff. It's, it's human. And like I said, it impacts on us sometimes differently because our circumstances are often so dire based on, and our um, self-image can, can be so um, lacerated. But I think, I think stories like yours are, are, can be found in Chinese culture, in white culture, in Hispanic culture. Um, I just think that what, my, what I hope will happen, what happened with you in therapy, what happened with me by being forced to go deep because of my book, is that we, we understand that the stuff that we do comes from someplace deep within us. And that it's not, it's not a fun process. I mean, you, you went to therapy. You know, that's not an easy thing. I'm sure you would tell people to go deep enough to find the truth of why you were pursuing the kinds of women you're you were pursuing. And why it felt so important to you to impart to these girls a sense of their worth. So that maybe Chris wasn't to blame or Rihanna was to blame, but 
they both maybe had a little bit of something to do with the dynamic between them. That it wasn't this person is the bad guy or this person is that it's you know human nature is weird. So to to go one of the things that make that amuses me on Amazon the first review of my book is from a 50 year old white man who says he loved the book because it made him examine his journey. So my hope is that it will encourage people to go deep. You know, my husband said that when he married me, he was signing on to the Donna Britt Dig Deeper program. You know, and, and, what, and what toil and labor that sometimes is. It's worth it to go deep. I'm so happy that I was forced to do it. Um, and I would invite you to go deep into yourself and to go there with some love and with some forgiveness. If you go deep enough, all you're going to find is love. Because I, I think we are composed of love, that we are divine beings. You just have to get past all the shit, excuse the expression, that we, you know, that, that can be in the way or seem to be in the way to get to that love and to get to that purity and to get to that truth about yourself. So I invite you. I mean, I hope you read the book, but I hope you take that journey more. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs>